Hey there. Thank you so much for tuning in for our big time talker podcast. We're everywhere now. Spotify, Apple, iTunes, iHeartRadio, wherever you download podcasts. Thank you so much for subscribing. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. And uh, we post new episodes every Tuesday, courtesy of our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a platform speaker or maybe you're a meeting planner and you're looking for a speaker, you can find one another at the robust online platform at SpeakerMatch.com. Our guest today is an international speaker, a transformational speaker. He's a serial entrepreneur. He served uh, our country in U.S. military also uh, spent six years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and now he's written a new book called Out of the Tunnel. My friend Marvin Peak joins us on the Big Time Talker podcast. Marvin, thank you for being here today. Bert, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Out of the Tunnel. What do you mean by Out of the Tunnel? Out of the tunnel, that term came from the great renowned author, Alison Armstrong. She has a series um, uh, studying men and women uh, that is the, the development of manhood and men and the development of womanhood. And she talks about how men go through these different developmental stages. They go from a page, kind of a person that uh, sort of uh, sits around and waits for someone to do something for them. They're in this relationship and um, it's sort of like a baby. You take care of me, love me. And if you, I don't get my way, I'll cry and whine and pout. Right. So we know some men may, may fit in that category. And then she goes into this next stage of what is called a night. And a knight is one that has a lot of energy. This person is uh, he's out there going, but he's having fun. He's enjoying himself. It's kind of out like they're out there slaying as much as he possibly can. It's, everything is enjoyable to him. And then the next stage is a prince stage. And this, in this prince stage, there are three categories uh, within these stages. And uh, there's an early prince, a mid prince, and a, and a late prince. Okay. And this individual is a little bit more serious about uh, life. Uh, they may have a girlfriend or a wife and a job, and um, they're a little bit more committed. They've had their fun. They're no longer a baby wanting folks to take care of them, but um, uh, they pretty much have their head on a, a, a little tighter and stronger and straight, uh, straighter. And so um, the, the middle prince after going through the, the first or early print stages, right. um, he may be a business owner, a person that uh, may um, have developed um, uh, a way for himself. He's a little bit more responsible, a little bit more independent. He owns himself a little bit more. And the late prince uh, pretty much has it going on. This person not only takes care of himself and his family, but he may also take care of his community. Uh, he's invested into the community and he wants to see that others do well. Um, he's somewhat successful and he's strong. He's determined that he's going to pretty much build a kingdom. He's going to own the world, <laughs> so to speak. Right. Uh, but what he doesn't realize is that in order for him to get from being a late prince to becoming a king, there's this experience that's waiting on him called the tunnel. And Allison says that men um, who get in this tunnel, they, they, she likened it to uh, having a midlife crisis where uh, he, he's going through difficulty, but he wants to hold on to his youth because he's going into a stage that he's unfamiliar with and uh, he goes through these struggles. Now, how I learned about these stages, it was through my good friend and mentor, um, Tony Robbins. And I was going through some difficulty in my life, um, very tough. I built up a, a great amount of wealth and living free and strong and powerful. And all of a sudden things started 
to fall apart. I was hit with something, one thing after another. And I didn't know what was going on, how to stop, how do I get back to where I was? Right. And I remember Tony saying to me, he said, um, when I first met you, I knew that you would be king. He said, the problem was you thought you were already king. Interesting. <laughs> he said, he said, he said you were a late prince at best with a king's lifestyle because you had no idea what was waiting on you. I know the turmoil you're in. It's the closest thing to death. Most men won't get to where you are, and those that do, they will die before they bear the crown. And he said to me, Burke, he said, you are not alone. And I will not let you die before you bear your crown. Well, it freaked me out. And I'm like, okay, where am I? Who's going to come in here and die? What crown is he talking about? Sure. <laughs> you know? and, and later I found out he was talking about the research, the work of Alison Armstrong. And I found out I was in this thing called the tunnel. Everything falling apart. I'm losing money. Um, it, everything imaginable that happens to you. The only thing is I didn't have any issues with my health. I was always healthy, athlete, work out all the time. But everything um, else was going sideways for you. Everything going sideways, just falling apart. And um, I had this great awakening. And I realized that it wasn't about having resources. It was about being resourceful. It was about owning myself and appreciating what is before me understanding that I had been living off of these subconscious programs like a robot. And along the way, I had a measure of success. But the true success was it's not about being rich, having more than what you need. It's about appreciating and doing well, meeting your needs with what you have. And once I discovered that, um, I looked at every aspect of my life and saw something to be grateful for, something that I could appreciate, something that I could celebrate. And my greeting then became when someone says, hey, Marvin, how are you? It used to be fine. I'm OK. Great. You know, I'm well. How are you now from being in the tunnel is how are you, Marvin? I am grateful because there's always something to be grateful for. And I use that as momentum. I start looking, investigating, searching, as we learned in the FBI, <laughs> for evidence to be grateful for and to make my way out of the tunnel. The tunnel, which was usually um, what I discovered was that many men that go into the tunnel, they really don't make it out. I look at Michael Jackson and Anthony Bourdain and, and uh, Robin Williams. They sure. had all the symptoms of men being in a tunnel. And I believe Tony was right. Most men don't even make it out. Um, but I made it out and I'm grateful. And um, I, I wound up, um, you have to tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm babbling on too long. No, this is fascinating. <laughs> I wound up um, going, I'm in the tunnel, not knowing I'm in the tunnel. And I go and I'm speaking at an event in, um, in New York. And a lady comes over to me and she says to me, she says, that was really marvelous. I don't know what you do for a living. She says, but the world needs to hear from you. Nice. She, she, says, she says, well, when you were speaking, I saw angels behind you and I saw my ancestors. And she said, um, I'm here to tell you that you're going to be in my life for the rest of my days on the planet. And I'm thinking at this point, now this lady is hitting on me. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what she says to me, she says to me, she says, will you go to lunch with me? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hang out with my friends. And she handed me a card and she says, well, if you change your mind, let me know. So she walked, she walked away and I reached in my pocket. I pulled the card out and it said, practical intuition, the circle, Laura Day. And I said, oh, my goodness, I just blew off one of my favorite authors. And you had no idea who she was. That's great. So the book, the book, the circle, 
one of my favorite books. I bought over a hundred copies of it and I gave it away. I said, everybody needs to read this book. And so I'm fighting through the crowd and I find her and I said, hey, wait a minute, you're Laura Day. And she said, yes, I am. Will you go to lunch with me now? I said, of course I will. And she said to me, she said, the world is suffering and the world will continue to suffer until you tell your story. Now, I know why you haven't, because you've been protecting yourself. It's been your uh, protection mechanism where you don't share anything because when you share things, people will use that against you. It opens you up. Yeah. She says, she says, I get it. But she says, now the world needs to hear from you. The world is suffering and they can benefit from your story. And if you don't tell your story, I'm going to consider you very selfish. Oh, man. (laughs) I'd never been called selfish before. And so she cut my goat. It was divine manipulation. (laughs) And so she manipulated me into getting uh starting this book she says i'm gonna stay on you until you write this book and we're gonna do an outline and this woman called me or texted me emailed me once a week and i knew that she wanted to know what's the progress man what have you done and i would do a little little and i wasn't interested in doing it but i gave her my word that i would so years would go by and i'm just jotting down different things about my life and um it wasn't until I was in a relationship with someone and we broke it off and I was devastated. Still in this tunnel experience, looking for a way out. And then um, I wound up in the hospital. Never been in a hospital, never had any health issues. Um, I can count, honestly, Burke, I can count on my two hands, how many times I've even had a cold. Oh, wow. And what, how this happened, I was going to one of the uh, community emerging care facilities to go to get my ears checked out. I thought because of the years of traveling with Tony all over the world, Tony Robbins, and sitting in the front row in front of those big subwoofers that uh, my eardrums were busted. And uh, let me go check it out, get the bad news. And it was just a bunch of other crap in the ear. They said, don't put, don't put Q-tips in your ears because you're pushing stuff back and it's building a wall. So I haven't used Q-tips since. But they cleaned out my ear and they said, okay, now what we would like to do is uh, check your blood pressure. Right. Why, I don't know. They checked my blood pressure and they said, hey, man, you're at extreme hypertension. The doctor needs to come in and see you. Doctor comes in. She says, do you mind if I do an EKG on your heart? And I'm like, man, this is like one of these community joints. I didn't come in for that. I just needed to get my ears fixed. And now I can hear. I'm ready to go. I feel fine. And she says, no, you're not fine. She says, "Uh, you need to get to the emergency room right away, immediately. And I said, no, I'm not going to the emergency room. She said, well, I'm not going to let you leave. I will call the ambulance and I'll call security and make sure. And I said, okay, you want to really go through all of that? Okay, I'll go. I'll go. You don't need to call security <laughs> and all that because now, I mean, you're sounding like you're threatening. I don't take too well with threats. Don't threaten me. So I'll go, right? So I get to the, I get to the emergency room. They were already waiting on me. It's crazy. I'm in there. Uh, immediately, they, they take me to a room. I'm sitting there in Burke. Um, I can't remember crying as an adult. I just burst out in tears sitting in that hospital bed. Like, why am I here? My relationship is over. Um, I reached out to uh, my ex and to let her know what was going on. She never responded. Oh, man. It was it was in that moment that I had gotten very serious about writing this book. So over the past five or six years of just jotting a bunch of stuff down and comparing, not taking it very seriously, that day in that hospital bed was when I really honed in and got this book out of the tunnel. <laughs> Marvin Peake's book, Out of the Tunnel, uh, is being compared to uh, books you may have heard of before, like 
uh, Think and Grow Rich or A New Earth or Who Moved My Cheese. It's, uh, it's uh, an incredible story of, of Marvin's background and how he got to be where he is. And if you check out MarvinPeak.com, you'll see people giving Marvin some some pretty big attaboys, people like Melissa Etheridge, Tony Robbins, who uh, he spoke with for an awful long time. And, and, and you know, as we have this conversation, people are not familiar with you, Marvin, and your background. Um, you did not grow up with the proverbial silver spoon in your mouth. It was about as far from that as possible. And then you find yourself... Uh, you know, living large with, with Tony Robbins. And as you said, speaking on stages all over the world, but it didn't begin like that for you. So I want to peel back the onion a little bit. Take me back to a childhood Marvin Peak. Uh, oh. wh- where were you at 12 years old and what was happening in your world? At oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'll take you back a little, little, little uh, further than that. And we'll come up to the 12 year old Marvin Peak. All right. But, uh, my, I, my, I, I was raised by my, my grandmother. Um, uh, my mother suffered with uh, alcoholism and um, she left me with my grandma and my grandma, she died at the age of 42 from alcohol poisoning. And I was in the house with her. Um, my mom came and got me and took me over a relative's house and, um, and she left me there and uh, they said I had to go. I was about five years old, I think. And uh, you remember this happening? I mean, that sounds oh, terribly absolutely. traumatic. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I was, I was the, I was the runner for for the for the adults when they sat around drinking and they were too drunk to move, but they wanted more alcohol. They could call the the liquor store and they would send little Marvin around to get the bags and bring the liquor over to them. They'd all lay around smoking and drinking and just laid out, and I was the runner for them. At so, five years old. Five, yeah, five years old. You know, uh, my reward was uh, I, I could stop at the McDonald's and 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 get uh, uh, some food for myself. So I would have liquor in one hand and, Mac- and a happy meal in the other. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm home uh, in the apartment with my grandmother. She used to sleep with her eyes open and um, be snoring and sleep with her eyes wide open. So it, it was no big deal. This particular day, her eyes are open and she's sleeping, laying in there. And I love these Flintstone vitamins. I don't know if they still had them or not. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Tasted- the little flavored vitamins. Yeah, I remember. Oh, those. yeah, yeah. They, they, Burke, they tasted like candy. I, I love yes. And But you can only, grandma would only give you one or two a day. So she was in the bed, sleep with her eyes open, and I would sneak in her bedroom and, and take a vitamin, then take another one. Before you know it, I ended up um, eating the whole bottle and I thought she would have caught me by now something is wrong right I ate the whole bottle and she didn't move and I called my mom and I said hey grandma is asleep with her eyes open well mommy didn't think much of it she's like well you know she always does that just shake her I'm shaking her she's not moving we'll shake her again and I'm shaking. No, she's not moving. And my mom says, well, I'm on my way. And she came with my auntie. And next thing I know, my, my mother was crying, screaming her mother's name. And so, um, you know, that was it. And I, my mother took me away, go over to different relatives' homes, and they let me stay there. So I would go from place to place. And I wound up in uh, foster care and shelters and I would always run away from those shelters because there were a lot of unsavory things to say the least. And so, so wait a minute. So your, your grandmother was 42, 42 when you found her, uh, dead in the bed, you were five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your, your mom is also not taking care of you. So you wind up, uh, you know, couch surfing through uh, foster parents. How many foster families do you remember? Ah, there were so many. I I don't remember, but there were a bunch. There was one that really stood out. It was a a religious family, uh, the pastor of a church, and they had a bunch of kids in the house. And the pastor would molest the little girls. And yeah, man. And so I saw stuff like that. And I would break. I would just leave. And I would just hit the street. And I just stayed out in the street. I had family members that were pimps and gang leaders 
hustlers and uh, they would always say, hey, do you need anything? Do you need any money? And I would just be out in the street, man, um, just sleeping wherever I, I could, you know, abandoned buildings or get inside of a car when it's too cold or, you know, ride the uh, subway all night um, or, or even get on a bus. And I was just out there in the street, man, from place to place. And uh, my grandfather had a best friend who's a boxing coach, called him Coach. And he said, if this kid is going to be out in the street, we need to teach him how to fight. And uh, so they, they, he taught me how to fight, how to take care of myself. And uh, a lot of life lessons that he taught me it was incredible. How, how old were you? you? You talked about being out on the streets. So essentially you were homeless. Oh, I was homeless. I, I was all my entire childhood. I was homeless all the way through graduating from high school. Well, that in and of itself, those words amaze me because that would be the next thing one would think is the education is not happening. The fact that you graduated from high school in the middle of this abuse and extreme poverty and homelessness, how does that even happen? How is it that you managed to stay in school? Burke, I went to over a dozen schools, um, but the schools had heat in the winter and they gave me free food, breakfast and lunch. That kept me going because I knew you were there for the heat and the food. Yeah. And, and while I'm there, I might as well do the work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I did the work, but I got the food and I got a little hustle in school, too. So, um, you know, kids like candy and I could play sports pretty good. We, you know, basketball, we would play for money and we would do this thing called slap boxing and we would slap box with 50 cents or a dollar. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, because I had nowhere to go, I would slap the hell out of people for 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> the slap boxing champion of the public yeah, Oh, man. You know, so I would I would take my money, my earnings, and I would go and buy candy and go back to school and I would sell the candy to the kids. So, you know, if I got uh, the uh, packs of now and laters or now and laters, they call them and sugar babies and all that kind of stuff. I would sell it for a dollar, a pack, and I'm getting it for, you know, 50 cents. And that's how I made my money. And I would take more money. I would go around to wherever they were playing ball. I would go um, and, 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 and play whoever's there. And it was like game seven of the NBA championship for me. I would fight for every loose ball. And some of the guys would be laughing, like, you know, this guy's playing so hard. They didn't understand that I have nowhere to go and I have no food. This is very serious to me. They could afford to lose the money. They would just play for bragging rights. But for me, it was survival, the slap boxing and the basketball and that sort of thing. And I never played or did anything that I didn't think I could win. I, I had to win. I had to win at all costs. So that was my thing. And I did that, you know, with my auntie had a, she pretty much run, run, ran a, a whorehouse and a gambling house and they would let kids gamble. So they would all be drunk and we'd play cards and I would deal from the bottom of the deck, or, you know, when they're not looking and I would take my winnings, leave it on the table and I would slide some of it under my thigh and only play with what they could see. And I had so much money from gambling. I had so much money under my thighs. Um, they didn't know it. I would just slip the money in my pocket every now and then. And whatever I had on the top of the table, once that was gone, they would think that they wiped me out. And I would walk away sad, you know, with a sad look on my face, but loaded with cash. So, <laughs> yeah. So I was an entrepreneur all my life, you know. Well, that's one way to put it. Entrepreneur is a kind way to put it. Uh, street hustler might be another way to put it. The street hustler, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, and, and I would call the game street organizations. They didn't force me to get in the games because I was a pretty good athlete and everyone knew my relatives. So they would leave me alone, um, uh, it, it, except for you know, one one of my cousins who was a, a pimp. And he, uh, he loved to pick me up and show me off in front of his women. And he actually tried to put one of the women on me. I mean, this lady was beautiful, gorgeous. You know, you have a little kid, man, and, you know, our testosterone is firing off and really high. And, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh. Sure. And you have these dreams about women. But I never had any experience with women before. In fact, we would talk as little boys. We would brag about stuff. But we're all lying. Of course. And when he, 
Yeah. So when he put this woman in the car and he, you know, forced her, he hit her and told her that she needed to be with me. And she's crying, saying he's just a baby. He's a kid. He said, I don't need you to talk or think. Just do as I say. And he hit her again. And he walks away. He walks up the alley and he leaves us in the car together. And I'm begging and pleading her with her not to touch me. Please don't touch me. She says, no, he's going to beat me up. And I said, let's just tell him we did. You know, it's going to be okay. And I was able to um, coerce this woman into lying with me to my cousin that we did something. And I knew at that point, man, I have a gift here. I can influence people, influence people for the right thing. And she was so nervous, but we played along with it. When he came back, I was giving him high fives and bragging and so forth. And I just coached that woman to not touch me. And that was my very first experience with a sexual encounter that did not happen. How um, old, looking back, how old do you think you were and how old do you think this woman was? Uh, she had to be about 24, 25. I was about, between 10 and 12. This is yeah. unbelievable. What an, uh, and what city were you in? Where, where did you grow up? We, we, uh, you know, from uh, the reason I went to more than uh, a dozen schools, because I was from Brooklyn, Coney Island, Washington, D.C., where, where we are here now. <laughs> I don't have a lot of great memories about this place. There's sure. a lot of wild stuff that happened. <laughs> so I traveled from city to city to city. Wherever there was an opportunity, I would show up and go. And I had a cousin who would pretend to be my dad to get me enrolled in school because I had no records. I don't know how this guy was able to do it, but he was able to get me into all these different schools. Crazy. Um, now, I got to share this story with you. Okay. Um, I'm running to school. And in the neighborhoods, hearing a siren, it's like, that was our orchestra. We heard that day and night. So it was no big deal. So I'm running to school and I hear the sirens, police cars zooming around the corner. And then he uh, jumps on the curb, slams into the fence and jumps out of the car. They knock me on the ground. Knee on my back is George Floyd before George Floyd. Gun in the back of my head saying, where's the microphone? Where is the microphone? And I'm crying. My face, his knee is on my back. My face is against the concrete. And I don't have a microphone. I'm going to ask you one more time. Where's the microphone? And a, an old lady comes and she says, what are you all doing to that baby? Get off of him. That's just a little boy. Let him go. And they let me up. They got a call. They had the wrong person. So, Burke, I'm clearly shaken. I'm sure. shivering like crazy, bruises on the side of my face. And I get to school and I tell the teacher what happened. And she says, boy, sit down. And I said, I, I, I can't work today. She says, we'll go to the principal's office. I get down to the principal's office and he says, listen, go back to class. We don't have time for that. That happens so much in these communities that even the adults, the, the ones that were supposed to be responsible, cared, could care less about what happened to us in those communities. Just go to school. I don't want to hear you complaining today. Just crazy. So, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, <laughs> I had no no idea that later on in life I would go into the military and, and by the way my first time ever sleeping in a bed was my first day in boot camp and that was a bunk um but no, I wait, wait, wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute yeah. the first time you slept in a bed was when you joined the army and you slept in a bunk in a bunk so before that you were where on a mattress oh, on the floor uh, 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 you're on the floor, you're on the ground, you're in the car, you're on the subway all night, you're, you're, you're um, on someone's floor or someone's couch. You're never in a bed. Marvin Peake's so, book, Out of the Tunnel, tells this incredible life story, uh, life stories 
uh, and, and how he came out the other side. And, and this is a guy who, you know, features uh, his encounters in the book uh, later on with uh, people like Michael Jordan and Deepak Chopra, uh, the late Wayne Dyer, uh, former president, George W. Bush, and, and many more. He really turned his life around. Marvin, I have to tell you, man, you are like, you are like a weed growing up through a crack in the sidewalk, just struggling for that ray of sunshine. And somehow you make it through that crack in the sidewalk. Do you ever look back on a background like this and, and question how it is that you found that sunlight? You know, Berg, it's interesting you should say that because every time I meet someone that's powerful in leadership, have done something so significant in their life that I admire, I go back and ask myself, how did this happen? Why am I meeting this person? How did I get to this table? Why am I on this stage talking to tens of thousands of people? Well, sure. Considering where I come from. Uh, uh, One of my editors said, (laughs) take no offense, Marvin, but you're like Forrest Gump from the hood. (laughs) (laughs) just keep running keep running keep running so you know that you know end up in the white house and i'm wondering like how the heck did this happen and then president bush comes over and he introduces himself to me you know when i first met him uh, i was invited to the um black music month signing in june and i'm there and i'm you know i'm the youngest one there and i'm looking at all of these powerful incredible artists and these wonderful people there and I'm sitting, I'm nervous as heck. And I'm sitting behind, he sat me behind uh, James Brown, <laughs> you know, and the president Bush comes out and, and he looks around and he's giving his speech and he notices James Brown and he just loses it. Sure. Says, it's James Brown. <laughs> Is that James Brown? And he says, Mr. Brown, may I please come over and shake your hand? And and James says, Mr. Brown says, yeah, yeah, come on. And then he goes over to shake James Brown's hand and I'm behind him. And he looks over at me and he says, hey, how did you get in here? <laughs> well, Bert, what do you I, say? I'm really, I'm really nervous now because I'm wondering how did I get here? So yes. I'm thinking about the election that he had just won. And there was a bunch of controversy about whether they had stolen the election or not. Right. So I played on that and I said, well, sir, I was invited. The question is, how did you get in here? Ah, ah, that's fantastic. President Bush fell out laughing. (laughs) And he put his arms around me and he said, you know what? I like you. You stay as long as you want. He said, have you eaten yet? Come and get you some food. And then he says to me, he said, have you seen my wife? And I said, no, sir, I haven't seen your wife. He said, I'll tell you what, come walk with me. He said, I have some business to take care of at Camp David. And when we're walking, the president has his arms around. I just met this dude like three minutes ago. And now (laughs) all of the artists are following us. And we go to this deck area on the second floor there where Marine One is there. And he leaves out. Secret Service takes him out. He goes and he waves back. And he gets on uh, Marine One. And he he leaves us there in the White House alone with all this food. And we have free run of the place. And (laughs) so I'm there in the red room, the blue room, and I'm just walking around and taking pictures and meeting all of these um, incredible artists. And it's amazing. I'm amazed you didn't start stuffing sandwiches in your pocket based on your background. I I thought about it, but I said, they'll catch me. So I'm going to eat as much as I possibly can, but I don't want to take anything out of here. I was really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) But after that, the president would invite me to practically everything. So when 9-11 happened, they even called me and invited me there to the the ceremony, the Day of Remembrance and Reconciliation. And I'm there and I'm sitting there with all of the living presidents and members of Congress and all of these influential people and um, these clergymen. And I'm there. They got, you know, little old Marvin in there with all of these big wheels. And I'm sitting there saying, man, you know, I'm just a little homeless kid off the street and I'm here with all of these people. Um, it, it, it just didn't make sense. Um, shortly thereafter, he comes with the faith-based initiative and they give little Marvin a call. 
and they asked me to attend. And I'm in the room with Jerry Falwell and um, 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 Billy Graham and T.D. Jakes and all of these people. And we're in this room and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And they're talking about how they're going to implement the faith-based initiative. And I'm a part of this thing. And the next thing you know, man, I'm 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 invited to meet the 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 uh, uh, the religious head of the White House. I forgot the name of the title. They call uh, the folks there that the the, the the religious leader. He invites right. me back to the White House, and they're talking to me about how they're going to implement the faith-based initiative. And I created this nonprofit, um, a conglomerate of faith organizations: Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists the Catholics, everyone, and I got them all together. And we started getting these grants, providing service to folks who are in need in these communities. And from there, I just built this great empire and I'm meeting all these people and I'm, I'm getting these invitations to speak at events. And they give me these small honorariums and I'm piling up cash like crazy. And the money is just getting you know, growing and growing. I have no financial education, but money is just flowing in like crazy. And um, one day I'm, I'm watching basketball and I see this guy come on TV, he's big, tall guy with his big old head and his big hands. And I'm like, man, this dude can talk. And uh, he has this, this program called the um, um, uh, um, uh, Unleashed uh, something, something program that he has. Um, a power, a personal power, personal okay. power program. And I order this program. I'm talking to the salesperson and she says to me, she says, Hey, you need to come to one of our live events. And I said, what live event? She says with Tony Robbins. And I said, no, nah, I've seen this guy on YouTube and did all the jumping around. I'm too dignified for all of that. <laughs> <laughs> you won't catch me jumping around. And she says, well, you know, I have your credit card and I'm just going to get you a ticket. And if you don't go, you just donated the money to us. And I decided to go and I show up and I'm there and I had a great time. Um, Tony kept coming over to where I was sitting. And I'm like, this guy keep coming over. It's like it's 5,000 people. and He keeps coming to where I am. And afterwards, the security comes over and they said, hey, would you like to come backstage and meet Tony Robbins? And I'm like, OK, cool. I'm waiting for hours. Now it's 2.30 in the morning because Tony doesn't sleep. He doesn't eat and he keeps those rooms very cold. But it's the uh -huh. greatest events ever. <laughs> so right around 2.30 in the morning, I'm walking out and I'm like, I can't wait. I'll meet this guy some other time, you know, maybe in another lifetime. Security stops. Wait, don't go. Wait just a few more minutes. I go back stage and I meet his wife, Sage. And then I meet Tony and, you know, we're laughing and talking and we just had a great time. And then he said, hey, you know, I want to see you again. And um, I started showing up. And one day um, one of the speakers didn't show up and they wanted to know if I would go on stage with Tony um, to do a, the, his platinum partnership uh, testimonial. And so I get on stage, they give me the mic, and then Burke, I just took over. And they went off. And from there on, they said, you have to do this at every city we go in, every country we go in. And that's how I started traveling with Tony doing the testimonials. Bam, suddenly you're a public speaker, and now you're a published <laughs> author. The book is Out of the Tunnel, Marvin Peake is our guest today. Um, hey, I want to ask you a little bit about your background in the military and, and then also going into the FBI because I'm, Marvin, I'm just fascinated by this, this kid who was a street hustler who goes from there to being, you know, in the White House with George Bush and, uh, and then, you know, on the speaker circuit with Tony Robbins. When you went into the military, um, was that, you know, an opportunity essentially for, or three hots in a cot? Uh, did you, was there something in the young Marvin Peake that said, this will benefit me? I'll actually, you know, get some discipline in my life? Or, or what was it that drew you to military service? No, no, you got it right the first time. Uh, a, a substitute teacher uh, knew of my homelessness. And he said to me, he said, look, son, he says, um, you know, if you join the military, it's peacetime right now. 
he said, uh, at least you'll have a place to stay. You'll get clean clothes because my clothes were dirty and stinky. Uh, sure. I some one, some really uh, great stories in my book and out of the tunnel about uh, the dirty clothes and the holes in the shoes and that sort of thing. Because you, you saw the movie uh, Pursuit of Happiness. Yes. Where 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 um, the, the lead actor, he uh, person, he would go. Uh, Chris Gardner, I'm sorry, Mr. Chris Gardner, he would go into the bathrooms with his son and, and, and wash up and sleep in the bathroom. That was me as a child um, in, in the bathrooms of the schools and using the soap dispenser to wash up as best as yeah. I possibly could, you know. Um, but um, uh, the, the substitute said to me, he said, you know, you'll, you'll get three squares a day. So you'll get training. You have clean clothes and a place to stay. And it wasn't a bad idea because I didn't have anything else. There was nothing else going on. You had nothing now, to lose, really, at this point. Yeah, no, no, nothing to lose. And I, I tell you, and this ties into to the FBI. Um, uh, I was a, a junior. And in between classes, um, the bells ring between uh, the first bell and the second bell. I saw some of my friends going into a classroom, and they had there were some men I mean, finely dressed. I mean, you know, suited and booted tight, you know, back straight, strong. I'm like, man, what is that? You know, <laughs> men in black. And I, I decided <laughs> to walk in that classroom with the rest of them. And I'm talking to my friends and the bell rings. Now I'm late. I'm in trouble. I might as well stay in this class with the rest of these folks, with all of these fine looking men and women. So I go take a seat in the back. And these guys started talking and I'm like fascinated. And so they passed out this test and I'm sitting there and I'm taking the test and I just lost track of time. The bell rang about three or four more times for other classes and I'm missing all of my classes because I'm in the back of this room taking all these tests. Well, when it was over, I walked out, didn't think anything of it. Uh, several months later, a few months later, I get a call to the principal's office and they call me and he says, he has this big um, uh, manila envelope and he says, you know, you're in trouble, right? And I said, what did I do? Why? He said, why were you in career day? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> get out of class. <laughs> he said, well, the good news is, do you know that you're the only one in that whole class who passed the Federal Bureau of Investigations test. After two tests, I said, what? <laughs> so I read the letter and I'm so excited and I'm calling these people right away because now I'm ready to go be an FBI man. Sure. And they said, okay, well, what, the first thing you need is your high school diploma. Well, that killed me right there, right? Because I'm just in the 11th grade. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the following year, um, I'm now a senior and I'm excited about life because as soon as I graduate, I'm going to the FBI. Um, right before uh, graduation, I'm told that the government is on a hiring freeze. So there's no government job for me. There's no FBI job for me. And the sub says to me, why don't you just go into the military? And that's why I went into the military. While I was in boot camp, the hiring freeze was lifted. And I was able to shift from active duty to reserve status. They flew me from uh, my training in Texas to uh, Andrews Joint Base here in the Washington area where we are now. And um, I enrolled in school. Um, the University of Maryland College, they call it something else, global something, something. Right. Um, and I began taking my training. I took my oath and I was going to school, doing my military obligations and training with the FBI. So all of, that's how all of that came about. Forrest Gump from the hood. <laughs> <laughs> Marvin Peake is our guest today. Visit him online at MarvinPeake.com. That's Peak with an E on the end. Um, you spent six years with the FBI as a field agent. Um, most folks, when they get to that level of law enforcement, if they can, they make that a career. You know, I know guys that, that did 30 years with the Bureau. You left after six years. Tell me about that. Why, why did I don't you... want to talk about that one. Um... <laughs> Come on now. 
I don't want to talk about that one. There's a lot, but I, I, I reveal some things um, in, in the book um, of, about my career uh, at, at the Bureau. Um, you know, I, I will say this. I, I gave them a very hard time. I gave them a difficult time, but I learned uh, life lessons that I'll never forget that I'm uh, um, eternally grateful for. I met some lifelong friends. Um, all the technical things that I learned, I apply, I practically use that stuff every day, along with uh, later on, I learned things about energetics and how everything um, aligns and works to get work together. And I use it practically every day of my life. Um, but uh, I wasn't too nice. They were very kind to me. They gave me an opportunity. They trained me. Um, they put a lot of faith and trust in me. And, um, and um, um, uh, uh, that, that in my youth, I was very young. I was a teenager. Sure. Um, so, yeah. And coming from where I came from, I, I had trust issues. So, um, and, and the history of the Bureau against organizations um, that um, my community built um, for survival, for justice, for equal opportunity, um, the COINTEL program, um, all of that was in my head. And I felt to some degree that I was betraying the community while holding on to this prestigious position and job and opportunity that was given to me. So it was a battle for me for those six years. But I want to you know, leave it at that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that though. And, and uh, I wondered. With the background you had pretty much since birth, certainly since five years old, um, if, if there's ever a temptation somewhere inside Marvin Peak to become a street guy again, you know, to be that street hustler, because that was so ingrained on you, in you from such an early age that, you know, for, for most of us, we, we have the, this, you know, fun childhood and we look back on it and, and, you know, it, it informs us uh, in our adult uh, lives. Uh, is there ever a temptation for you to become that hustler again? Never. Uh, the only thing that I had to work through was uh, the violent aspect because, you know, violence was um, a way of life coming up in the hood. Uh, it was your only means of protection. It, it, it either you, you either take or you get took. And, um, you know, I had to protect myself and I, I couldn't, and a lot of ego involved. I couldn't allow people to say what they wanted to me, to do what they wanted to me. And it took me a long time to get that out of my system, so to speak. I had to get to the point where I had to love on people more than they hated themselves. Uh, because it was never about me. It was about the conditions and the mindset of the individuals that were attacking. They didn't mean any harm. There's only two types of communication, one of love and a cry for help. So I had to, to get myself to understand that when a person is aggressing upon me in their words, that's their cry for help. Now, do I meet them at that level or do I raise it up? Do I lift it? And it took me a while to get to the point where I am, but I never go back to being a street hustler and doing some of the things that I needed to do so, to survive because I understand now the dynamics of universal abundance. I understand the law of attraction. I understand it. I have everything at my disposal. Either it's with me or it's on its way. So I no longer have to revert back to those tactics of survival. Now, you know, there are times when my, my, my sensei, my martial arts trainer, uh, he said to me, he said, Marvin, you got to get rid of that temper. He said, because you're going to hurt someone, people don't know what you know. And had I known that you would behave the way that you do sometimes, I would have never taught you this. And that lesson he gave me, I stopped and I hadn't been in any confrontation, physical confrontation with anyone since. Because he's right. I mean, the average person that does a lot of talking and woofing, they, they don't, you don't know what I know and what I'm capable of. So the best thing for me to do is love when you give you a hug if I possibly can and walk away from you because you have no idea what I'm capable of doing. 
Um, and it, just learning and meeting people like uh, Tony and, and Deepak Chopra and the late Wayne Dyer and um, Joe Dispenza and all of these folks, I mean, they took my consciousness to a level where I no longer have to be that person, behave that personality that I grew up in. I was able to evolve, deactivate those old subconscious programs that says that the only way that you can survive is to take from someone, to dominate someone, and make sure that your ego, your image, your name is above everyone else. Because if you can do that, that keeps the dogs off of you. But if you come in low, meek, and quiet, you get run over. Um, so <laughs> though, though I had those, those humble experiences, I would never let anyone take anything from me. You're just not going to take because I don't have much. I don't have anything at all. And uh, I'm willing to, to, to go to the limit to protect the little that I do have. So now it's not that I realize that, hey, if I can give it to you, I'll give it to you because there's another way I'll get it. You know, the universe is, is, is uh, self-organizing. Um, uh, it, all seeing, all knowing. And so that which you take, <laughs> there's, there's cosmic consequences to everything that we do. So you're not taking from me. I realize that it's going to be replenished over and over again. I'll let you have it. And I'm letting you have whatever it is you think you're taking from me uh, because I know the consequences that are coming back to you, but you just open space for more to come to me. So I had to get into that mindset in order to not just survive, but to totally succeed. And I found a measure of success by opening up my consciousness and utilizing the laws of abundance, the laws of attraction to create a life that I desire without having to push and fight and struggle and scream and cry. Makes it's an sense. incredible journey, this story. This uh, Out of the Tunnel is the book. It's brand new, Marvin Peak. Uh, who's now uh, an ambassador of peace. And he has you know, spoken with Tony Robbins, Dr. Wayne Dyer, spent a little time with George W. Bush and James Brown and Melissa Etheridge. It's all in the book, Out of the Tunnel, um, along with uh, an incredible childhood story of heartbreak and abandonment and betrayal and rejection and loss of confidence, loss of money. Uh, but he does, in fact, come out of the tunnel and give you some some incredible strategies on how to do it. What a story. Thank you for sharing it with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for allowing me, Burke. I really appreciate it. So thank you. If you're a fan of, uh, of books like uh, Think and Grow Rich, uh, Who Moved My Cheese, and New Earth, you will enjoy Out of the Tunnel from our guest today, Marvin Peak. Visit him online, Marvin Peak. Com. That's P-E-A-K-E, MarvinPeak.com. Served his country in the, the military, served in the FBI, and now he serves you with his incredible new book, Out of the Tunnel, available now. Thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. Keep an eye out for Marvin Peak online and uh, wherever great books are sold and uh, wherever you go, whatever you do today, make it a great day. Thanks for being here. Bye, everybody.